righty. Episode seven of the Partners Desk, and uh, we've taken a little road trip to Columbia, Missouri. Uh, and our guest today is a Mizzou sports icon. Uh, he probably won't tell you yourself, but tell you himself, but he hasn't worn a jersey from Mizzou, but every single weekend, every single weeknight, the Mizzou plays, you welcome him, welcome him, god damn, all right, wow, this has been a rough start already, you welcome him into your home, your car, or anywhere that you're listening to Mizzou Sports. Um, our guest is also a uh, member of the 2017 Missouri uh, Sports Hall of Fame class, please welcome Mike Kelly, thank you for letting us into your home. It's a pleasure, thank you for your, your flexibility, this time of the year, uh I don't have much control over my schedule, so uh, so it's so I'm, I'm glad this worked out because it was something that I wanted to do when when y'all reached out, and so happy to be here. Well, I mean, like I said, it's great for you to have us in your home. Uh, great for you to be on our podcast. Um, for those of you who've been living under a rock for the last 28 plus years, I mean. Mike Kelly is uh, synonymous with Mizzou sports, as Harry Carey is with the Cubs and the Cardinals, except for less drunk and <laughs> less acting <laughs> antics. But <laughs> as far as you know, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you don't just become the face of the the voice, the face of Mizzou sports overnight. So I have been told by multiple people that I've got to hear your first like your first steps into sports broadcasting and how you got into the industry? Well, it's it's a long story. Are, are, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I got so, backup batteries um, and everything. I uh, So I grew up in a small town in southwestern Illinois, Dupo, Illinois. And initially I thought I wanted to be an attorney. Um, and then kind of decided I didn't think I wanted to go to school as long as I was going to take, right? Mm -hmm. I had a... Uh, had a business law class and, and said, you know what, that's, that's not a lot of fun. Um, and, and always wanted to, I, I played, played football and basketball, ran track in high school and played two years of junior college basketball and had hoped to go to SIU Carbondale to walk on there and um, got admitted into Southern and uh, after having suffered a broken hand my sophomore year playing basketball uh, at Belleville Area College, um, literally in August before the start of uh, my junior year at Southern, which would have been uh, the start of the 1982-83 school year, um, I was water skiing in the Kaskaskia River and uh, tore my hamstring in three spots when I came up on a slalom ski. The front footholder broke. My tip of the ski went in and kind of pulled my leg back and I felt God. it pop, 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 and uh, couldn't run for six months, basically. So that was kind of God's way of saying, you know, you, you need to find something else to kind of focus on when you, when you get to Carpendale. And I was accepted into their, their radio and TV program and, you know, went through there, had, a, had fun, got a chance to do a lot of things while I was there, worked at both student stations, um, got to work for the commercial station in both Murfreesboro and in Carbondale. So quickly, fast forward, I, I graduate um, in December of 1984, took an extra semester just because I wanted to get more hands-on experience, uh, and was hired in March of, of 1985 by a small radio station in uh, southeastern Illinois, Olney, Illinois, O-L-N-E-Y. Olney is synonymous with a white squirrel. White squirrels are indigenous only to Olney, Illinois. Didn't know that until I arrived in Olney, Illinois, a town of uh, probably about four to 5,000, I think. Uh, was told by the radio station manager there, who was an SIU grad, you're going to do sports. That's all you're going to do. I didn't, I didn't know sports. I did um, a shift on the AM station. The Memory Maker was the moniker. Hits from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, hot Hit Radio was big at the time. You know, pop radio was called Hot Hit in the radio industry. I uh, did a shift there. Um, I can see you with like a smooth jazz <laughs> voice, like on the radio, like I, coming to you yeah, late night. Yeah, night. you know, <laughs> I, I needed to adapt, and I didn't adapt very well. But uh, you know, I literally could take on the the morning shift. Um, I could take albums, old albums, and uh, put them on a turntable, and just let the record play, and nobody would ever call. So I was spending that time <laughs> on the station's Watts line. 
like literally two days into the job, calling friends saying, I've got to get out of here. This is, this is not going to yeah. work. I had a friend in Champaign, Illinois, or from Champaign, Illinois, whose, whose dad was a program director there, and I had, a, I had an inkling that there was going to be an opportunity that was going to open. And uh, sure enough, the Thursday of my first week in Ali, Illinois, I got a phone call from my buddy, and he said, job's open. Um, I went to Champaign on a Friday. I interviewed, um, was offered the job, came back in the next Monday morning, put on my two weeks' notice, <laughs> and, and left out only after three weeks. And, and it was such a small town that the, my landlord prorated my first month's rent, uh, gave me back my full security <laughs> deposit, which coming from Carbondale and uh, SIU, that never happened. Right. Um, but went to Carbon, went to uh, to Champaign, had three wonderful years there. Got to do Illinois uh, women's basketball, women's volleyball, play-by-play. I was the first broadcaster east of the Mississippi River to ever travel and do home and away games, home and away games, with a Division One women's volleyball team. That had happened on the West Coast, but it never had happened, um, you know, in the Midwest. And so hmm. uh, that became. I didn't know it at the time, but volleyball and doing those broadcasts became a great training tool for other opportunities I was going to get. Um, taught you how to selectively edit in your mind. Uh, taught you how to keep up with pace. Um, you know, and it never yearned for excitement because there was a, you know, uh, serve, uh, dig, pass, spike. And, you know, you'd get some rallies, but in the women's game, there, there aren't as long a rallies as there tend to be, I think, in the men's game sometimes. So, anyway, it was a fun experience. I uh, got to do... Lou Henson was the head basketball coach at Illinois at the time. Mike White was the football coach. So I got to help out and do both of their shows. Um, uh, did a talk show five nights a week. Um, 1985, uh, the Chicago Bears uh, go to the Super Bowl. The University of Illinois was one of the only schools uh, in the country at that point in time that had a dome uh, an, an air pressure dome over their football field. They put it over the playing field to serve as their indoor practice facility. So the Bears, in preparation to going to the Super Bowl, came to Champaign to work out. And, and, and maybe the story that you're referring to is I was, I was at one of the news conferences at a place called Jumer's Castle Lodge, which is in Urbana, Illinois. Um, and I heard a big booming voice from across the room asking, I think, Mike Ditka a question. I said to myself, I know that voice mm -hmm. because I'd grown up listening to KMOX with my father. He, When he would pick me up from, from practice or from events, KMOX was always on. We would listen to Cardinal Baseball together. The voice was that of Jim Holder, who is still to this day one of, one of my dear friends. And um, So I went over afterwards and I said, hey, I'm Mike Kelly. I'm from Dupo, Illinois. I work here in Champaign. I want to work at KMOX. Well, when do you come to town? I said, well, I'm going to actually come to town in the spring. Uh, well, look me up. Okay. So I called him. True to his word, he had me come over to the radio station. I got to meet a couple of people there, including Rob Silverstein, who was the executive sports director at KMOX at the time and our executive sports producer. Rob would go on to have a career with Pat O'Brien, uh, producing a lot of his TV shows, uh, worked for a short amount of time in Entertainment Tonight. So he, had, he, he was at the start of his career and headed for many great things. But Rob said, here's the deal. We don't have a position. But go back to Champaign, Illinois, and be our correspondent on Illinois sports. And when things happen, give us a call. Send us audio from games. Send us previews for games. Send us, you know, if news stories happen, send us things, material from those things. Um, and so I did. And for the next two and a half years, uh, I was in Champaign. I was KMOX's correspondent in Champaign. I never asked for a dime. Um, and I continued to, um, you know, have them, as I was wanting a job, evaluate my work and critique my work because I was, in effect, working for them for free. So the football Cardinals decided to leave St. Louis. Um, that created, and head to Phoenix, that, that created a couple of openings of people that worked in the KMOX sports department that had an association with the team uh, through husbands and wives and things like that. Got a call from Ron Jacober saying, would you like to audition? Yeah, absolutely. So I came into St. Louis, 
Um, I auditioned for the job on a weekend. I'm driving back to Champaign. Got back to Champaign, and I called my buddy Holder again. I said, hey, I want that job. So, like, what do I need to do to get that position? Well, you got to get to Highland. He was referring to Robert Highland, who was the legendary general manager of KMOX. He's the guy that brought Bob Costas to St. Louis. Mm. He was the guy that hired Dan Kelly. He was the guy that created talk radio, basically, in the St. Louis market. Um, he would have Stan Musial come to the radio station and read the newspaper as part of a radio show. Uh, he was the one that created call-in shows, so legendary figure in the radio industry. I said, okay, how do I get to Highland? 314-444-3244. Actually, 3201. 314-444-3201. Uh, okay, great. So when should I call? Well, if you wait past 7 a.m., or past 6 a.m., you'll never, you'll never get him. Mr. Highland was a very devout, he was a workaholic, but he was a very devout Christian as well, Catholic. He literally would come to work sometime between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., and he was so involved in so many civic uh, initiatives in St. Louis that he would work on that type of thing between in the wee hours in the morning from the time he arrived until... 6 a.m., just before then, he would get up from his desk and he'd walk across the street to the old cathedral for Mass every day. So Jim's message was, you better get him before 6 a.m. So for the next several weeks, I set my alarm on Friday mornings for 4.15. And at 4.30 in the morning, I would get up and I would dial 314-444-3201. And the first couple of conversations, I kid you not, went like this. Robert Island. Mr. Highland, Mike Kelly calling from Champaign. Just want to you know want you to know how much I want this job. We're still interviewing people. Thanks. Click. That was the extent of it. Next week, same thing. Now we go from and this was April. Now we start moving through May. We get to the end of May, and I kind of knew I had a had a shot when one morning, 4-2201, Michael, how are you today? And I thought to myself, huh, okay, maybe there's a chance. And then literally later in, in June, uh, I continued the process, and he finally, I guess it had enough, and said, we got to hire this guy. So <laughs> that, that was how I got to KMOX. And then um, my affiliation with Missouri, again, goes back to, to Mr. Highland because I was, I was working at the radio station. Um, I would work Saturdays and Sundays, be off Monday and Tuesday, and he comes to me prior to the start of the 1989 football season. He says, hey, here's the deal. You just got married. You don't have a family. Um, how would you feel about driving to Columbia, Missouri every Monday to do this show called Tiger Talk? Um, and I said, sure. He's like, well, what it is, it's with the Missouri football coach. They're going to hire some guy named Bob Stahl. Um, and, and Bill Wilkerson, who's doing the play-by-play -play at the time, does not want to drive every Monday night. I said, I'm happy to do it. I would love the opportunity. That was in 89. Um, Missouri had an associate AD at the time by the name of Joe Castiglione, who's now the uh, very well-respected athletic director, long-term athletic director at Oklahoma. Joe used to answer the phones on Monday nights. He would sit with us, I mean, side by side as we were taking calls, as I like to say back when football coaches, when men were men, and they actually took calls on, on their coaches' shows. And uh, so Joe got to know me, and, and he knew my background, that I played basketball, so... Uh, Rod Kelly, who was doing color at the time on Missouri basketball, uh, became ill and couldn't travel for a couple of games during the 1989-90 season. So I filled in for him a couple of times with Tom Doerr. And then Rod stepped away prior to the 1990-91 season. So I did color for a season with Tom. You know, um, again, a lot of this is a God thing because I did one season with Tom and then he gets the job doing the Chicago Bulls at the end of that season. Bill Wilkerson gets the job doing the Arizona Cardinals prior to the start of the 1994 football season. And then Joe Castiglione and Roger Gardner, who were the two people primarily responsible for me getting a chance to do Missouri play-by-play -play in basketball, offered me the opportunity to do play-by-play -play in football too. So that's it's a long-winded answer to your question, but that's how it all kind of came about. And There's a lot to unpackage there, and the one thing that stuck out in my mind the biggest is that 
You have to interview for broadcast jobs. I don't know why that's the one that sticks out, but I just imagine like a like a weird casting call where you have like the old videos yeah. of you know reading fake headlines and everything. I mean, is that what it is? Is that what a typical? Well, yeah, there's a resume tape, right? So everybody when they get into college, they start working on their resume tape, um, and I think there's a new word for it now, but uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is. Maybe a, maybe a track or something like that. Mm. But um, you know, literally, and and this goes back to before digital editing. So, you know, you're laying things down on a reel-to-reel, and then you're, you're mm-hmm. taking a chalk pencil um, and, and a razor blade, and, and you're editing things out and editing it together and maybe putting a little music underneath it. Anyway, trying to make this slick production, because yeah. everybody will tell you that no one's going to listen to your tape for more than a minute. So you better come out on fire, mm-hmm. because past a minute, they're probably going to shut it down. Um, Great story. When Costas was at Syracuse, as he's applying for the job for the play-by-play announcer for the old um, Spirits of St. Louis of the ABA, he, his voice was high at the time. So when he was making his tape, he would take the uh, bass and turn it up to make <laughs> him sound like an older, more uh, uh, established broadcaster, if you will. And... Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, so, so, so you, you send the tape, and then if you're, you're lucky, you get an interview. And, um, you know, radio is interesting. Uh, Performing is interesting, right? Uh, my daughter's a performer. She's, uh, she's an aspiring Broadway actress. And, in fact, she's in New York as we speak. She just flew back because she got called back for a uh, second callback for the national tour of, of A Christmas Story. So, nice. you know, hopefully it's God's will and it happens. But... It takes one, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in, in performance, it takes. It, it's not like sales. Sales, there are tangible numbers mm-hmm. that dictate or tell you whether you're succeeding or failing. To initially get the job in radio, it, you, you got to have somebody that likes the way that you sound. And most people, when they get into this industry, don't like the way that they sound. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever met a person that will tell you on their voicemail that they leave, uh, <laughs> that they like the way that it sounds. And yeah. I, I'm the same way. So... Um, it's a unique business to say the least. So when you get asked to come down on Mondays to do Tiger Talk, which you're doing this afternoon, I think, right? No. It is this evening, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you basically take over and start interviewing Mizzou's football coach when Mizzou is basically at their lowest of lows. Was there any feeling that they're like, oh, they're just kind of tossing me out there? Kind of like, <laughs> you know, you, you know, it's funny you ask because, yeah, I mean, there were times where it was, I mean, it was, and Bob is, is, is a friend and, and actually is a, is a neighbor who lives here in Columbia and close by. And um, we, 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 we don't laugh about it because he's a little sensitive still, but we talk about it that, you know, there were times where literally I, I had the media guide out. And I was going page by page. Hey, tell me about this guy, Russ the Bus McCullough. What, what, what about this guy? <laughs> well, you know, he's 6 feet 10, 297 pounds. That was how you filled time because we weren't getting phone calls back then. And those that you, you might have received may not have been entirely positive at the time. And so, uh, but yeah, started with Bob Stull his first season and then uh, continued on with, with Larry Smith and then on to, to Gary Pinkle and Barry Odom and 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 now uh, and now Coach Drink. So, who is the worst? No, <laughs> the worst call. <laughs> no. Um, so, like, it sounds like you and and Bob have a good relationship still to this day. But a lot of football coaches can keep a lot to themselves and not really share. But the point of a one-on-one conversation like that is to find out stuff that as a listener that you would never have gotten to. And so I assume like Barry Odom probably held a lot close to him. He just seems like that type of guy. You know, it's um, interesting that you say that. That's, that's an interesting analogy. Um, and, and I have known Barry since he was a freshman, right? When he, when he signed to play her under Larry Smith. Um, I will tell you that of the football coaches that I've worked with, he is the only coach that I don't have a relationship with now. Hmm. Gary and I are neighbors. Bob and I are neighbors. We, you know, and, and, and we talk, they do a pregame show with me every week that we, mm-hmm. that we put on our broadcast. Um, you know, and, and Gary, there were times when, you know, listen, it, it's, 
it is your role to describe the play. But in that environment, you know, you have to ask difficult questions at times. And, um, you know, there were some times where, where, where Gary didn't appreciate the question, but he understood that it had to be asked. Um, and that you were going to see him next week, so you weren't going to Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, that, that I've always been consistent in that, you know, game gets over, um, you know, you're going to see me, right? So if you get issues with something I said during the broadcast, you know where to find me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've never had – I've only had one time where, where a coach, you know, maybe took exception to something I said on the radio. And, and we can get into that in just a second. But, you know, when, when Barry was fired – um, I think a lot of us saw it coming, right? I think he saw it coming. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have really have much of a relationship. I still like him. I still respect him, but we yeah. just don't talk. So what was that, uh, what was that question? That so you remember a game called San Diego state, uh, a few years ago, uh, TJ Moe was a wide receiver. Missouri was down, um, it looked like Missouri was going to lose to San Diego State. San Diego, San Diego State was going to knock off a ranked team for mm-hmm. the first time in yeah, 30 years maybe, whatever it was. San Diego State gets the ball. Missouri's forced to punt late in the fourth quarter. And I made the comment, well, it looks like San Diego State's going to win the game. They had a running back named Ronnie Hillman who would go on and play in the NFL for a number of years, who had rushed for, I think, close to 200 yards that game. So you're thinking to yourself, three handoffs to Ronnie Hillman, first down, ball game over. I think 58,000 fans in the stands kind of felt the same way. Well, for whatever reason, Brady Hoke, then the head coach at San Diego State, decides they're going to throw a swing pass on first down, incomplete. They try to throw something else on second down. Missouri deflects it. Then they try to run the ball on third down. Missouri stuffs them. Tigers get the ball back. The rest is history. They throw a little swing pattern to T.J. Moe. He goes 68 yards with 108 to go, and Missouri comes back and wins the game. Well, I'm walking <laughs> through the offices that next day or that Monday, and Pinkle says, hey, 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 come in, come in, come in. I got to talk to you. Yeah, what's going on? He's like, oh, man. I got a thousand calls about you. I bet you it's a thousand calls. I said, How many do you normally get? <laughs> he kind of looks at me and said, What? How many do you normally get? If you got a thousand, I mean, no, that's not the point. Uh, you, you said on the air that it looked like we we're going to lose. Yeah, looked like you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't say that on the radio. You, you started like you had historical facts of what a win would mean for San Diego State. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why would you do that? Because it's germane to the story. And part of what we're doing is we're telling a story about the game. Well, you can't do that. (laughs) Anyway, it ended up where we both were smiling. I said, we respectfully, we we, we disagree. And I think probably the only reason why it was even brought up is that maybe his wife at the time was listening to the broadcast in her suite and, and, and maybe took a little bit of an exception. I don't know. It's a theory. Right. You know, it's one of those... I mean, I, to me, it'd be extra motivation, but you don't hear it at the time. So now you're like, oh, it can me out. We're, and we got to go back on and talk again here in the next oh. three days. Like, but so that isn't the only group of people that you talk to. So you talk to the basketball coaches as well. Yeah. And so I think, if I'm remembering correctly, um, you uh, in '89 when you started, Norm's, uh, Norm Stewart still there, and on and up damn good run for Mizzou basketball mm-hmm. in general. What's it like um, coming in and immediately know that you're talking to a Mizzou legend? To a legend, yeah, yeah. and a respected figure and a guy who's not only just a respected figure in the state of Missouri, but one that's um, respect, respected across the country mm-hmm. because of his program, because of the way that his kids played. and. Right. Um, and obviously, having been in Champaign and watched the Bragan Rights game mm-hmm. for for many years, and and seeing those matchups, and and listening to the comments between, you know, Coach Henson and and Coach Stewart at the time, um, I don't to say that it wasn't intimidating would would not be accurate on my part because there was a little bit of a of of an intimidating aspect for me, but. 
having said that, no one made me feel more comfortable. The first Mizzou basketball game that I did was on the road, filling in for Rod Kelly at Oklahoma State in old Gallagher-Iba Arena. Missouri won the game. Uh, prior to the game, uh, Coach Stewart came over and it, you know introduced himself and, hey, Mike, you know heard you on KMOX many times. Uh, you know heard you with Larry uh, or, or with Bob. Really appreciate you taking time to be here. Uh, kind of the way it was. And, uh, you know, then that next season, the first game we play was, uh, was at Bradley. And uh, Tom Dore and I are seated on the baseline talking to John Rooney, who was doing TV at the time. And the team arrives, coach walks right over, and, hey, Mike, great to see you. Looking forward to working with you. He could not have been nicer. Could not have been more friendly. Could not have been more helpful. Um, you know, we established a, a really, really good relationship and friendship. And I, we still talk, and I, and I still care deeply about he and Virginia. And um, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's a memory um, and something that I will treasure the time that I spent doing Missouri basketball when, when, when he was the coach. So, I mean, you, we go from uh, Norm Stewart to Quinn Snyder. Yeah. Uh, Are you saying this a little different? Well, as much as I appreciate what Quinn Snyder's done at Utah recently, uh, I would love to seen it at Mizzou. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know what? And he had some success, right? Yeah, a couple yeah, yeah. of a couple of tournament teams. Um, I just think at thirty-two, he wasn't he wasn't ready for what the demands were of the head basketball coach of the state's flagship institution after following a guy who had been there for 30-plus years that um, not only was synonymous with the institution and with the program, but was so well-known across the state because of the many times that he was out and about around the state, right? And um, I... you know, as I've thought about this through the years, I think Quinn's time that he spent um, working for Coach Shashevsky, from a public relations standpoint, probably hurt him in terms of preparing him to be the head coach at Missouri. At Duke, it's a private institution. Mm-hmm. At Duke, the head coach, and granted, he's had a great deal of success, right? Mm-hmm. Not only at that point in our lives, but you know, now recently announcing his retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he didn't want to do something, he didn't do it. You don't have that luxury at Missouri because it's the state's program. It's not a private program. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, Quinn would take exception to events that he had to go to uh, that were part of the job. And I think, I think that was one. Um, I think he was in a different place then, too, you know, as a, as, as, as a coach, uh, certainly from a, from a lifestyle standpoint, I think he was at a different – we all knew this. We all knew the guy was brilliant, right? You spend your time yeah. with him, you understand how smart he is. And, and you also understand that when you spend time with him, he's – from an X's and O's standpoint, from a creativity standpoint, from designing plays, that he, that, that he was brilliant. And, you know, so am I surprised by his success in Utah? Not at all. Uh, but I think we all go through a period in our lives where we just have to, you know – we have to grow up and mature. And, and I think Quinn, you know, attacked the things in his life that he needed to attack, uh, took a step back, went to the, went to the developmental league, um, you know, got with good people and uh, continued to build his brand and, and has done a successful, you know, has, has been very successful in Utah. So then we have another, we have four or five coaches, including Kwanzaa Martin, who's here now. It's been there's been peaks and valleys of plenty. Do you feel like Kwanzaa's gotten us down the right path where, and I, if you just say yes. No, no, I think, no, I, I, I appreciate the question because I I think it gives me an opportunity to expand. I I have this conversation constantly with a group of friends here. Um, I think Missouri fans have to say, what do you want? What do you want to be? Um, He's been here four years. And he's gone to the NCAA tournament two years, two of the four. Mm-hmm. Probably would have been three of four had Jonte Porter not gotten hurt mm-hmm. and, and missed an entire season, what would have been his sophomore season. Um, so 
So, so what do you, you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, um, now having said that, the first guy that will tell you that they want to win at a higher level than what they have won is Conzo. Yeah. Um, you know, I think as you look at what he's done with this program now, I'm excited to see here in year five, his team, because it's, it's, you've got some veteran players that are back. But there's been roster turnover. But I think that roster turnover has been for the good. And now you've got some young guys that, you know, he can build his program around, whether it be the, you know, the two kids from Springfield or, or, or the other guys that they've brought in. And, um, you know, it's just it, – it's one of those things that, you know, I, I think you have to understand where you are as a program and, and the steps that it takes because it – it's not an overnight fix, Mm-mm. you know, and, um, you know, you, you can look at many cast of characters along the way that had an impact on, on a negative impact on, on the, on what Missouri basketball is right now. Uh, whether it be a, a Frank Haith and Kim was dealt a, a very, very difficult hand. And, and what people don't realize is that it was the work that Kim did mm-hmm. behind the scenes in terms of, working on academic progress rates and things like that that help put the program in a much different position for somebody like Conzo to even consider taking the job. And so, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it, I think we're all very proud of what the historical nature of the program is. But I think everybody, including the fans, including the administration, the student body, um, donors, coaches, and players know that they want to see it get better. Mm-hmm. And, and so... I'm optimistic to see what the future holds. What do you think a realistic expectation is for a Missouri basketball fan? Is it a tournament win? No, I think I think you should always have at Missouri. I think you should always have the expectation that you're going to make the field of 64 or 68. I just think that that should always be the expectation. That should be the standard. You should make the tournament every year. We Missouri was doing that, right? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly under Coach Stewart. Now there were times when issues came up and you didn't make, but that that should be that should be the standard. Is you you know, you should be one of the top sixty eight programs in the country, um, and so, um, and I know they're striving to try and accomplish that. There's you know, and um, you know, I, I I really like his staff. Uh, and again, I'm looking forward to see the new guys and see what see what they bring to the table. He seems to be an incredible recruiter. Um, I'm not knowledgeable enough to be to determine whether or not his X's and O's are there, but he's making splash on the recruiting scene just like Drinkwitz is, and I think it's promising. Yeah. I, but I don't know. Any I, more I don't. Than I don't pay. I, yeah. I don't. I literally. I pay so little attention to recruiting. I really do because I've always just viewed my role as when they get here, that's when I'll pay attention. Because um, there's nothing I can do to impact their decision to come, right? Um, I mean, why don't the why don't the insurance company do a couple of NILs? And <laughs> uh, uh, I guess they could still got to be here, right? How many have you done? Uh, we're actually in talks with one right now. Oh, so. baby. <laughs> Uh, no, the uh, but I mean, from a recruiting standpoint, it's like I remember when I when when I was working in Champaign, um, Mike White was coming off the Rose Bowl. I think he had what a guy named Tom Lemming, who was a recruiting expert based in Chicago, uh, classified as the number one class in the country. Four or five years later, or four years later, when those kids are seniors, I think there were two of the original class that were still in the program. So it's hard to predict what. What, what kids are going to do and how they're going to develop. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that I think Gary Pinkle probably doesn't get enough credit for is the way that he developed players during mm-hmm. his time at Missouri. And, you know, whether it be a Ziggy Hood, who at the time was, I think, a two-star recruit in, in Amarillo, Texas. And mm-hmm. you got to really want a kid to go to Amarillo, Texas to recruit him because it's not an easy place to get to. Mm-mm. But he recognized something and he developed him. And, you know, he went on and, and, and had a successful career in the NFL and, and I think any career in the NFL is successful, particularly if you're mm-hmm. a two-star kid coming out of Amarillo, Texas. Well, so we actually uh, had on the podcast Tim Barnes. Timmy uh, Barnes, yeah. one of my favorites. So as a small-town kid like that, I mean, obviously it's not it's a lot easier to get there 
um, than it is Amarillo, Texas. But it's the same kind of deal. I mean, he's coming playing eight-man football, and he, they've got to develop him, and he has a great career. He won't tell you that himself because he's a very humble guy and everything. But um, it was incredible to watch what Gary Pinkle did with two, three-star guys because there was – only had maybe one – uh, or two five stars in his entire yeah. tenure at Mizzou. Yeah, Torio Green Beckham uh, would be one. I think uh, Sheldon Richardson Sheldon coming Richardson out was of a five star. Hutchinson. Yeah. yeah, but that was about it. So going back to football, um, Mizzou escapes Central Michigan. I say escapes. It was a ten point game. It was a lot closer than some of us thought it would be, but. Going forward, I mean, Reed, are you one of those guys that Coach Pinkle yes. used to refer to as, you know, those guys that show up to the game and all they care about is they want to be drinking beer and eating popcorn in the fourth quarter and just relax because the game's over? Uh, not quite. <laughs> I'll add one little caveat to that: is I believe good teams win, great teams cover. So <laughs> I <laughs> I needed fourteen points there. <laughs> oh. But yes, all the all yeah. the latter is true. You know, here, here's here's what I thought about the first game. Um, I thought it was a typical first game in that there were a lot of mistakes that were made. I thought it was a typical first game in that there's a lot of opportunity to improve between week one and week two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought Missouri did the most important thing, and that is to finish the week one and zero. I think that there, are, on the offensive side, have to be better on third down. Um, ran the ball very effectively with Tyler Beatty. Uh, I still think that there's uh, going to be an opportunity to develop a third, maybe even a fourth back that kind of jumps into that rotation. Um, you know, you, you got to throw the ball better on third down. I, I think Connor would tell you that too. Um, you've got chances to make plays, though, when the ball touches your hand, you got to secure it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there were some receivers that not consistently drop balls, but there were a couple of plays that could have been made that were left on the field. To me, the biggest thing coming out of that game is, again, uh, from a defensive standpoint, you gave up some explosive plays, um, you know, and and that's missed tackles. uh, That's maybe a lack of gap integrity at time up front. That's not being able to set the edge, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and be able to turn the play back inside of the pursuit. Uh, But... Having said that, the optimistic side is is in each of the last two seasons, each of the two previous seasons, Missouri finished the year with 19 sacks in each of those two years. They had nine in the first game. And I know that it wasn't all the defensive line, Mm -hmm. that there was a variety of blitzes and things like that. But again, nine sacks, two interceptions, which in 10 games a year ago, they finished with four. So um, I think this is a defense that will get better. I think that they're going to be more opportunistic, probably played more man uh, in the first game than they they anticipated. Uh, But even saying that, I saw during camp this year more eyes on the football, more deflections, more interceptions in camp than I had seen in the previous camps. And so – I think you take a win against a Mac school that returned like 19 starters Mm -hmm. who was not going to be intimidated about playing at Furrow Field in Columbia. You take that and, you know, you move forward and try to get better. So do you – I think I know this answer, but do you see this Kentucky game as a pivotal game for Mizzou's season? What does the outlook look like if they win or if they lose? I think the first month of the season is really important to attain your goals, right? And you've got – so you've passed the first test. Mm-hmm. Now you go on the road for the first time against a team that's that's that's, that's really improved on the offensive side. Um, so, you know, I think it's a game that if you can win it, it puts you in a position to start 4-0. Boston College is not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination. That's a team that a lot of people are cons- considering as a sleeper in the in the ACC. Um, it's, it, it's pivotal in that it gives you, you know, a measure of bragging rights over Kentucky, two consecutive wins. It allows you to win it in Lexington for the first time since the aforementioned DGB scored four touchdown or right. had four touchdown receptions against Kentucky. Um, and it's a step in the right direction in terms of closing the gap between the floor, between Missouri and the Floridas and the Georgias and things like that. So 
uh, pivotal. I, I don't know. Pivotal may be a little bit strong, but it's certainly important uh, in terms of trying the overall goal. Trying to now is your season over if you lose in week right. two? Okay. No, yeah. but it certainly would. Um, you know, I don't want to say give you some breathing room. Would give you a measure of confidence the next time you go on the road in a couple of weeks to Boston College. So. You just mentioned Boston College. This kind of goes into the background of uh, sports broadcasting, right? There's a lot of prep to be done, uh, especially as a play-by-play guy, and probably a little bit more uh, subjective stuff when you're the color commentator. Mm-hmm. But what does what does calling a game uh, versus a team that you don't really have any prior knowledge of? I mean, you have some, but you don't. It's not an SEC East team that you see every year, and you kind of get familiar with everybody. What's the is how much different is the prep for Boston College? Well, you know, you don't see them as much, right? So you have right. to spend a little bit more time reading, and um, you know, as I've seen things online, I've 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 got a Word document on my computer that I just kind of toss it into. You know, it's it's a Boston College document. Mm-hmm. I've got another one that says Kentucky Notes, and so you work off that. Um, you know, for me. Uh, one of the biggest things is just know, knowing the numbers, right? Knowing the players. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, once I get a, a, my notes developed, I spend a lot of time just trying to memorize the skill position players and who may touch the football. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just through the process, I mean, uh, game ended uh, Saturday. Sunday morning, I got up, and, and, and Saturday prior to the game, I'd gone on Kentucky's website. They put on their game notes, which inclusive of those game notes are um, the two deep for the for the game that they play, they played in week one against Louisiana Monroe, and then their their roster. So I'll pull those two elements off on before the game. Mm-hmm. Sunday morning, I get up, and then I pull stats from the first game for both teams. Uh, I have an Adobe um, InDesign program that I use to develop uh, my game boards, and I start working on those on Sunday. So I put put in the template uh, too deep based on the the week before uh, number, height, weight, year, hometown, significant stats that go along with it. Whether it be the running back, could be an offensive line, number of starts that he's made. Etc. Do that for both sides of the football, and then when we get into the into game week, uh, this week Mark Stoops at Kentucky did his uh, weekly news conference, released his, his depth chart on Monday. Um, Missouri did theirs on Tuesday. So then once those are done and you have the depth charts, then you go by and you cross reference, right? See what other changes are, update those, and then as the week goes on, once I have the templates set and I have them proofed and, and, and read, then I'm just simply adding in notes. Now, um, you know, for Saturday's game at Kentucky, we're speaking on a Wednesday. I taped that on. I, I, I uh, printed those notes today because we travel tomorrow. So uh, any other additional notes I'll do, I'll just add to the Word document that I'll keep in front of me as well. So that's, that's kind of the preparation. You know, I, I look, you know, when you get into the SEC, right, you, you've seen these teams before, so it's not as hard to, to know Josh Ali, the wide receiver for Kentucky's number six, or Wandale Robinson's now number one, or Isaiah Epps is number 81, or Justin Riggs, their tight end, is, is 83, because you've seen them. Will Levis, the quarterback, seven. Chris Rodriguez, 24, is the running back. Cavassier Smoke was nine a year ago. Now he's zero. Uh, Mike Drennan's number five. Uh, Tisdale kids 33. Anyway, you, you see, so the numbers kind of right. easily with sometimes with, with opponents you don't see all the time, like a Central Michigan, it may take a couple of series to just get used to seeing the numbers. And for me, that's the most important thing is to be able to see the numbers and, and recognize who has the ball and who doesn't. So everybody kind of has a pregame ritual, uh, whether you're playing or you're a fan and Heck, we even shut down the restaurant on Sundays because nobody wanted to come out and eat. Everybody barbecues and watches the Chiefs game. You know, everybody's got their own rituals for sporting events. Do you have one as you're getting ready to call a game, whether you're home or away, or what? Is there any difference? Are they the exact same, or is there none? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I guess if I have one, um, I always want to, you know, you have nervous energy, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, my wife Lori was kind of uh, making fun of me last week because 
the game wasn't until three, so it was a little bit longer of a of a time to when am I going to go to the stadium? You know, things like that. Normally, yeah, I try yeah. to be there three hours out. Uh, I went three and a half just because I needed something to do. Uh, but I normally get up early. I, I I try to go work out. That that always helps me kind of just you know burn off some of that that nervous energy. Um, a you know I um I don't want to say I'm superstitious, but there's there's a you, you want to make per- sure that your voice is prepared. How do you do that? Well, I lemon and honey and and hot tea, or there's a there's a thing called throat coat that I'll use too, which is I kind of that a herbal a joke. Deal. Like that's people actually do that. You actually do, yeah. No, there's actually voice preparation. Yeah, you know, and it's just basically it's like you know singers go through their 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 drills. For me, it's just making sure that you're you know uh, hydrated. Drinking a lot of water in the, in the days, because you know, talking for four hours or however long it is, nonstop. I mean, first of all, it, it, it probably is more draining than people anticipate. And I stand for the entire game, um, so there's a measure of kind of getting into game shape, you know, as, yeah. as you're waiting to to do things. And so, uh, yeah, hydrating before in the days leading up to the game, uh, literally, you know, a little hot tea with lemon and honey to kind of just coat the throat in the morning, and then just away you go. Are there any times that you've gone to either an away game or I guess it would only be away games where they basically have put you in a corner? Like they've just put you away in the dungeon. They've not really given you access uh, like as you probably need or would like. Um, you don't have to name them by name. No, no, no. I, yeah, no, that's easy. Uh, bad, bad booth locations. Uh, Oklahoma used to be the worst because there was a pillar in the middle of, of, of the booth. And so you were always... <laughs> you know, kind of running into it. Um, Texas Tech, we played as they were building their new press box. This is many years ago. And, and literally our, our our booth was a um, plywood structure, two-by-fours and plywood that they were still building. You know, it was temporary, obviously. Um, 1999, the Rams played the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in – the NFC Championship game. And I got called that morning uh, by CBS Radio to do the game and to drive from Columbia, Missouri to St. Louis to do the game. I had no game notes, none whatsoever. Um, it was before InDesign was invented. Right, exactly. So I go to I go to my friend Mike Bush, who at the time was the Rams play-by-play announcer. I said, hey, I, I need some help. I mean, can I get a copy of your notes? And so he, he put one on a printer and kind of printed off the notes. Uh, I'd fortunately seen the Rams play Minnesota the week before, so I kind of I, I knew the Rams, you know, Prohl and, and and Warner and Marshall Falk and that group, right? Um, and then Gene Deckerhoff did Tampa Bay, and I went to Gene and I said, "Hey, is there any notes you can help me with? I just got put in this thing." Our booth though was literally in the press box. We were in the and, and I'm not saying that may not sound weird, but we were. Like where the writing press were, like literally there was a guy from the Tampa Tribune like four, four seats over because we were standing in the front row of the press box because they were not prepared for, for national radio for some reason at the Dome in St. Louis. But um, got a chance to do that game with literally just a few hours' notice, and um, it was just fun. It was fun it. to be a part of it. I, I hope so. You know, I, um, you know it was uh, – I got to work with Matt Millen. Uh, he was uh, he was the color analyst. John Dockery was on the sidelines. Um, you know, I, I met John at the uh, the Ritz in Clayton. I had to pick him up. I was told to pick him up at X time. And I was there about 45 minutes early, and he, he, his first question was, how fast did you drive to get here? <laughs> Maybe a little faster than anticipated. Yeah. Maybe a little Nervous anxious. Nervous energy. <laughs> no, literally. When I, I, I walk down there. I meet the producer. And Doc Reese says, well, let's go down and meet Matt Mellon. So we go down to the field, and you get the Rams on one side and Tampa Bay on the other. And, and I'm standing there. Literally, it's kind of a half circle. It's Howie Long, Terry Bradshaw, James Brown, John Dockery, and Matt Millen. And it's like the old Sesame Street song. Like, one of these things is not like the other. Because <laughs> that's the way I felt. And But, again, those guys were tremendously, you know, warm and friendly and helpful. So, is it kind of a... It, does everybody in the industry, uh, in the broadcasting industry, understand that it is a, like, a cooperative effort? 
Um, oh. Everybody, there's no reason that one guy, the Tampa Bay guy, wants the Rams guy to fail. Um, you're no, just, I, I think that there's, I think, I think there's buy-in on the part of the announcer for you know you want the team to succeed, right? Mm-hmm. But in terms of like animosity towards one another, um, you know, having now been in in two leagues. Uh, three, if you count the Big Eight, but going mm-hmm. Big Eight, Big Twelve, you know, you bring in the Texas schools, and and, and now in the SEC, you know, those are those are some of my my favorite people. I mean, one like I, I, I read, I tell people all the time, what they say, what do you miss about not being in the Big Twelve? Well, it's not trips to Ames or Manhattan or Lubbock or Waco. Mm-hmm. It's you know um, the guys that are in my position that do games. Bob Davis, the, the legendary former Kansas announcer, was one of my best friends. I mean, I, I, I look forward to seeing Bob, whether it be football or basketball. Uh, now, did he want Kansas to beat Missouri? Yeah, <laughs> you darn right he did. Um, did he Did he make – did he um, – He didn't give you any bogus well, notes. Or no, 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 no. <laughs> but, 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 you know, if Missouri was struggling, would he make a snide remark, you know, kind of in jest? Oh, yeah, no question, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but it's some of the, you know, Bob Berry, the, the, the late, uh, you know, Oklahoma play-by-play announcer was a guy you look forward to seeing. Uh, and there, there, there are so many others, but the guys in the SEC are, are good people, you know, that, that, um, welcome Missouri and Texas A&M into their, their little fraternity and, 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 you know, um, certainly it made me feel comfortable. So everybody has their own opinion on. SEC versus Big 12, the feeling when you get into, say, Oxford versus going to Norman or anything like that, how much different is it? I mean, obviously, you had to, you met a whole new cast of characters um, when it comes to these other play-by-play announcers and whatnot, but does it still feel, does it feel, does it just mean more? Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, it does, I think, to the fan bases across the board. Um, you know, and that's not – I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are going to fit in just fine. Mm-hmm. They have passionate fan bases. Missouri's still learning, still trying to figure it out, what it means to be a part of the SEC. I think Missouri's fans are still learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the neat thing about being in this league um, – and, and it's personal experiences, right? You know, you know, yeah. you can only share personal experiences. Exactly. I have not met a fan from any team that Missouri has played in the SEC so far in the last ten years that has not been friendly or respectful. None. I mean, they've all been friendly. They've all been respectful. Do they want their team to win? You're darn right. They want their teams to win. Are they going to root their their tails off or? You know that team, yeah. But when you when you encounter them, uh, and you're wearing Missouri gear, it's not like you're. And, and maybe it's because we're still the new kid on the block. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, still trying to find rivalries. You can't say that about going to a game in, at Allen Fieldhouse in in Lawrence, Kansas. You just can't. I mean, uh, their students, um, you know, obviously get to a fevered pitch, mm-hmm. and you know when when you walk in with black and gold on, that's a different level. You know, in terms of the way that 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 they view people. So. Uh, it is what it is, but I have found the transition to be wonderful. Um, you know, the the towns are neat. Um, there there are little charming things about every community. There really are, um, and um, you know, it, it, the venues are 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 legendary, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's just it's just fun to have an opportunity to visit them. So you mentioned uh, we have yet to find the rivalries. We've had a couple like kind of forced on us between the Arkansas uh, rivalry every year. Yeah, and I then, just don't know that anything's happened organically. Yeah, right? I think at one point in time we were close to have a pretty decent rivalry with Ole Miss in basketball. I, I thought there was a little, you know, there was a little passion from mm-hmm. from both sidelines. Um, you know, the the Arkansas thing, you know, there's there's a there's a increased level of Interest, I think, in the rivalry in basketball. I think there's more interest in the basketball rivalry because they've played more often than in the football rivalry. Uh, I just don't think organically we found uh, a good match yet. Um, you know, maybe that happens when when Oklahoma and Texas arrive. But um, you know, how do you find a rival? Well, first, you got to start beating the other guy. Yeah. 
on a consistent basis. Yeah. And, and then that kind of gets their fan base going a little bit. So, um, you know, just all, all, all things take time. Yeah. It, I, a while back, you mentioned there's possibly – oops, sorry. Uh, mention possibly a budding rivalry with Kentucky. I think that's one that's like, okay, that's a little bit more realistic than doing the Mayor's Cup or whatever with uh, South Carolina. Yeah, that's just the whole Columbia thing, right? Right. You know, Columbia, Columbia. And, yeah. and, and, you know, that's the, they're, they're, they're kind of some games like that that are hokey across across the spectrum. But, right. you know, uh, what are Missouri and, and Kentucky both doing? They're both They're both fighting their tails off to close the gap mm-hmm. with the traditional powers in the East in, in Georgia and, and certainly Florida. And so, um, you know, you, you got to step over somebody to get there or step on somebody to get there and we'll see what happens. So, um, over the next, I guess it's going to be 12 weeks. You will do a tiger talk with Drinkwitz every week. And that even gets into basketball. I haven't noticed – football take precedent or take uh, – uh, Two different nights. Uh, we do the football show on Wednesdays. The basketball show is on, on Monday. So there are going to be times as we get later in the season where we'll have a, a basketball show on a Monday night and a football show on a, on a Wednesday night. When you, November is the most complicated month of the calendar. So how much prep goes into those as well? Because I was I was kind of laughing um, doing my research over the last couple of days, and even with uh, John a little bit, that this Tiger Talk was kind of like an original podcast. Like back in 89, you did it once a week. Um, there was really no way to distribute it and listen to it after as well as you can now, but... Um, yeah, I, it was just on the network stations. It was available. It's right? called radio, right? <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> called radio. And then, and, and but now it's now they've created this thing called the Inside Mizzou Athletics Podcast, which is more of a channel for content as opposed to just a individual podcast. So, in you know, as a part of that, um, is a, is a is a show that uh, a guy named Brad Trinago and Matt Michaels, who uh, work with us on the broadcast, they host that. Uh, then you've got a wrestling aspect to it. Um, there's also other sports okay. that'll do stuff. Uh, and then Tiger Talk, they they put that content up on the Inside Mizzou Athletics podcast, so people can can listen to it each and every week if they miss it live. Is that the easiest place to find Tiger Talk? Because I also saw there's a Facebook page. There's a Facebook page where we, you know, every you know, like as we're looking around at three cameras right. <laughs> staring at <laughs> your face. I mean, everybody now has a camera, and we're starting to do more of that. The the cross. I guess pollination, if you will, of of of, of you know the whole broadcast industry, um, you know, video content is becoming more and more important to people. So uh, we stream live on Facebook every Wednesday night uh, on the MU uh, Tigers Facebook page, uh, and so it's Drink and, and myself, and then the then the guest as well. But in terms of preparation, yeah, you prepare. I mean, you know, I I put together usually a document with who the guests are going to be, and then also. You know, just break down in segments, just different topics that you want to get to. And so, um, if anything else, just to keep the show moving. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, if you didn't have topics and we were just sitting here, you know, shooting the shit, it could, if we were good enough, which, or let me rephrase that, if I was good enough, uh, <laughs> it could keep no, the show I, going. Trust me, I, you know, I, I, people would, would nod on pretty quickly if I was just talking about <laughs> random stuff. So. Um, so, you mentioned. Back when you were um, in Illinois or at Illinois, right? You traveled and was the first, and were the were the first. Uh, I was the first uh, play-by-play announcer to travel to road games and broadcast women's volleyball at so Division One schools. That's a little bit of an obscure sport. It's not obscure in the sense that nobody knows what it is, but that it's not as big a sport as basketball and football are. Um, are there any other sports that? you have been asked to do play-by-play or color commentary that are more obscure, like a wrestling or like a field hockey. (laughs) I once did um, a telecast um, with wrestling and knew nothing about the sport. (laughs) To this day, know nothing about the sport. Brian Smith does a great job. That's about as much as I know about wrestling, uh, <laughs> particularly at Missouri. But um, so I, I, I did wrestling, and it was literally one of those things. Introduce the match, stay out of the guy's way. 
Yeah. Just just stay out of his way. You know, this kid's 189 from, you know, Belleville, Illinois, or whatever. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, I, I guess probably the other event that I did play-by-play for that was really obscure is in St. Louis, they have a thing called the Veiled Prophet Parade, which is um, downtown. It used to be downtown over the course of the 4th of July weekend, and there used to be a big air show downtown. It used to be a huge uh uh, festival, if you will, picnic. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, I had to do the play-by-play of the Veiled Prophet Parade as it marched by the KMOX studios on one Memorial Drive in downtown. And there, there was a lady that I worked with who who, who passed away at a, a very young age. Uh, Mary Phelan was her name. She and I uh, worked together at the station. Um, and, you know, as well, you know, she's talking about, you know, the different things on the float and I was talking about maybe the individuals and you know, you'd bring in somebody to talk about certain organizations that were represented but that was that was a difficult assignment it, it, you know just because it's like first of all you have to generate interest you yeah. know and um, you know my wife makes fun of me to the day because I just really don't I'm just not a parade guy you know it's just not something <laughs> no, that I that I fancy but so you tell a story you paint a picture every time you're on the airways every time that um, you're on TV, anything like that, you are painting that picture for sports. So I can only imagine when you're having to describe a float or a parade uh, parade decorations that it could yeah. be a little outside your comfort area. When was that? When That was in... That was the 88 or 89. Oh, okay. So, so right so. after starting, you know, hey, here's the new good. Let's throw him on the blue guy. Let's throw him on the parade. <laughs> oh, it's a gorgeous looking trailer. Tandem wheels in the back. Look at the wood structure on the decking. Wow. <laughs> Did you notice the license plate? Out of towners representing this this float at this, you know, Vale Profit Parade. So. Uh, what uh, What is one of the most memorable? So I, I have in my notes that... Um, you weren't the commentator for the fifth down game, but right. you were there for the kicked ball. Do you put those in the same category like all Mizzou fans do, or do they hold a different level of um, – you remember them differently because you were actually calling one um, and were a fan? Well, well I, I guess was, you may not. I was doing postgame uh, during, the, during the, the fifth down. In fact, we were in the studio in St. Louis, and uh, myself and Jim Holder and – um, another gentleman used to used to host a a a, a wrap up show, if you will, a post game show mm-hmm. that went on the network stations, and we were listening as as the game was going on and taking notes, and, and we all kind of realized at the time that hey, this this is the fifth down, this you know, mm-hmm. and, and we immediately tr- tried to call the booth um, and, and couldn't get through, but um, you know, Bill Wilkerson, if you if you listen back to his play by play, Bill was on top of it because he was he was. He was keeping notes and keep track of the downs. Um, I, I, I don't. I don't know if I put them into any category other than, um, you know, missed opportunities. I mean, the fifth down or, or the, the 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 flea kicker game was oh oh what might have been, mm-hmm. and, and I still remember that that the video board at at Field and ABC late in the game. Uh, took a shot of the sideline and had Larry Smith, and it almost looked like there was a tear in his face. You know, his team was maybe getting ready to do something that was pretty spectacular, knocked off then the number one team, the eventual national champions. So, um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of them. The You know, the the Edney lay-in in Boise, Idaho, as UCLA, you know, mm-hmm. survives and advances and goes on to win a national championship. Uh, I put those all in this category. I've always thought this. College athletics is about kids making plays. And on those individual days, Charles Johnson in the fifth down, uh, Scott Frost and um, um, Matt, um, well, young wide receiver, Davison, who, who, who caught the ball. Matt Davison from Nebraska who caught the ball. Uh, Ty Zedney. In those individual days, a kid made a play to make a difference in the game. And so that's that's the only really thing I, th- I think about, you know. Do you have a couple in mind of the Mizzou? Is it 
the, the days that Mizzou made that play. Oh, yeah. Like Oklahoma yeah. on the 100th, uh, 100th homecoming. John McGaffey's kick return mm-hmm. for a touchdown. Uh, Lorenzo Williams sacking Todd Reesing in the end zone in the game in Ar- uh, the Armageddon game. Um, you know, Anthony Peeler going off at, at, at Allen Fieldhouse and also, um, you know, on the road in Arkansas. I think it was like his junior year. Um, you know, uh, Melvin Booker, again, having an unbelievable game against Kansas. And, and you know, as Missouri – um, would eventually go 14-0 and in Big A play and, and win its last conference championship. Think about this. The last time Missouri won a conference championship in basketball was in 1994. Um, you know, uh, thinking about, um, you know, Marcus Denman scoring the last nine points in regulation against Kansas at Mizzou Arena uh, for Missouri to come back and win. There have been a lot of them, you know. And so um, – you know, you just look at it as, as you're just really, really blessed to be a part of it and, and just play just a little small role. So I really appreciate you spending the time with us today, taking an hour out of your very busy schedule, especially during football season, letting us into your home. So I only have, like, one one more question for you, and it's pretty serious, so, like, like let's... Uh, I'm like, seated. Like, uh, I'm, I'm, Let me get a sip of water here. Okay. Uh, how did I do? You suck. No. <laughs> you were great. No, no, no. I'm, I'm serious. No, it was great. I mean, uh, it, it's podcasts are, are an interesting venture, right? It's like, um, you know, you wonder, and, and I just did one briefly for a year with the Inside Mizzou Athletics thing, and it's like, okay, what do you talk about? And when you're talking to somebody else each week, you're talking about Mizzou sports and things like that. But, but I'm also it's like, does anybody really care right. what I think or what I have to say? Um you know, but but no, I, I appreciated the fact that you you know you well prepared, and that you gave me the opportunity to think about some things that I hadn't thought about in a long time. You know, and so um, it was fun to do. Thanks. Well, I appreciate it. I thank you again for letting us come here, being part of the show. No, I just appreciate your seven. flexibility. Yeah, no, of course, anything. Yeah. Um, so once again, this was uh, episode seven of the Partners Desk. I want to thank Mike Kelly, uh, Mizzou legend, Mizzou's Harry Carey, and uh, and we'll see you on episode eight.